The scripture reading for today comes from 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 1 through 9 and 19 through 22. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered toward gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint us a king to judge us like all of the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when he, they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so also they are doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, there shall be a king over us, but that we may also be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. This is the word of God to us. All right, good morning. It's good to see you. Uh, thanks so much for being with us today. If you don't know me, my name is Andrew. I get to serve as one of our pastors here at Frontline. Uh, I want to say if you're here and you're not sure that you believe some of the stuff that we may believe, that's okay. Uh, and even if you're sure that you don't believe at all, uh, that's okay as well. We want you to wrestle with the claims of Jesus today and know that this is a place where you can, you can ask any question you want. doesn't mean we'll have the answer, but you can ask any question that you want to ask and we'd be happy to wrestle with you. Uh, I, I grew up inside of a home, like probably most of you, with short statements that were said almost constantly. The, these were like Burkhart Proverbs in my house, and, and they, were, they were statements that we lived by. So here's one that was said almost all the time. In fact, I probably just assumed it was in the Bible somewhere because I heard it so much growing up, and it was said with such force and regularity. And it's this statement, what goes around comes around. Anybody? Did you hear that growing up? Yeah, maybe you've used that early this morning trying to get your kids ready for church. Uh, Listen, this is a statement that uh, I heard all the time, and it was said sometimes as like a discipline statement towards me. I'd do something to one of my nine brothers and sisters that was mean, and then my mom would say, hey, remember what goes around comes around. Or uh, sometimes it was said as like an encouraging statement to me. Somebody would do something wrong to me and get away with it, and my mom would be like, hey, remember what goes around comes around. I mean, this was a statement that sometimes was disciplining me, sometimes was an encouragement, but it really really was the way that I saw the world. And what's funny about it is you probably don't think about this that much, but many of you functionally walk into the room and that's just the way that you think the world works. On some level, what goes around comes around and you know what is meant by that. And this is like Oklahoma's version of karma, is it not? Like we may not say we believe in karma, but we believe this statement. And here's what's really crazy. Uh, This statement certainly isn't in the Bible, 
And although it's really, really helpful as a parent at some ventures, it can be really helpful for you, uh, it's actually not a Christian way of seeing our life in the world. It's not a Christian way of seeing our life in the world because the Bible doesn't teach karma, but the Bible does talk a lot about the discipline of God over his people. Karma and discipline are so different from each other. Karma is a fear-based transactional system of morality where it's like if you do good for someone else, that good will eventually come back on you. Or if you do bad to somebody else, that bad's going to come back on you. But the Bible doesn't teach karma. It talks about the discipline of God. The discipline of God is rooted in his love and commitment for us, where he looks at us and he says, I actually love you too much to let your sinful decisions just continue on as they want to go. So I'm going to step in. And at times, I'm even going to allow you to taste the consequences of your decisions. Not because I want to punish you, not because I want to shame you, but I want to bring you to a place that I can train you and form you. So karma and discipline could not be further apart. And here's why I kind of kick us off with that this morning, because this text that we're going to look at today has a lot to say about the discipline of God over his people. And maybe, maybe we'll make sense of what might be happening in your life today. Uh, you, you could sum up this whole sermon, and really you could sum up the whole book of First and Second Samuel, and for that matter, you could sum up the entire Old and New Testament with this statement. God is faithful, we are not, but God is still faithful. Or here's another way to say it, God is king, we are crazy, and yet God is still king. Like if you're, if you're not sure what the Bible's about, that's what the Bible's about right there. God is king, we are absolutely crazy and yet God is still king. So let's jump in to 1 Samuel chapter 8. To understand what happens in chapter 8, you really need to understand the context of where we've been up to this point. In 1 Samuel 7, what we see is the Ark of the Covenant. So think Indiana Jones, that golden box with the two angels on top, that thing. That represented for the people of God the presence of God for them. Uh, What happened in chapter 7 was that the Ark of the Covenant had been previously stolen by the Philistines, the people of Israel's greatest enemy, and yet had returned to them safely. So they're celebrating the return of the presence of God. And then what we see happening is the people of God, after a, uh, like 20 something years of rebellion and rejection, they finally start to turn their hearts back to God. They repent, they gather together in a city called Mizpah, and they begin to pray and cry out to God, and they make a covenant to him saying, hey, we're sorry for all the past sins that we've done. We want you to be our God. And we're going to put away all of our other idols and we're going to worship you alone. We're going to worship you alone. That's what happens in chapter 7. But as they're gathering together to renew their covenant commitment to Yahweh, the God of the Bible, what happens is the Philistines realize that they're all together, realize that they're in a vulnerable spot. So the Philistines go to attack. And as they move to attack the people of Israel, they begin to cry out to God for help and deliverance. And then God powerfully responds and he routes the, uh, the army of the Philistines without them even having to lift one finger in battle. He somehow works this miraculous victory. The Philistine army's routed. They run terrified and they're completely defeated without Israel having to lift a sword or do anything to fight for themselves. So what they do is they take a rock, a big stone, 
They put it, uh, put it down and they say, this is a stone of Ebenezer. This is a stone of remembrance. Uh, literally, it means stone of help. So every time you see that stone, it's, it's reminding us that when we were in trouble, God helped us. When we needed it, God fought our battles for us. And Samuel said, the, the way it ends is, the Lord has helped us. Now, you need to understand that to understand that chapter 7 bumps up against the stuff that happens in chapter 8, and it builds the drama and the tension of what we read. So look at 1 Samuel chapter 8 with all of that in our mind. Look at verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together, and they came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. So they say, hey, Samuel, what we want is a king. We want you to appoint a king that can judge us like all the nations. Now, this is an interesting request. And and actually, there's a dilemma here because this is not necessarily a bad request, right? They come to Samuel and they say, hey, listen, Samuel, think about it. You're old. Like, no offense, but you're old. By the way, anytime someone says, hey, no offense, but what they're saying is, I'm going to offend you (laughs) with what I'm about to say. I just don't want you to be offended at me when I say it. So they're like, no, no offense, but you're old. Your time's coming to a close. Your two sons are not as godly or good as you are. You're a great judge and a great prophet, but they're taking bribes and they're distorting justice and we can't trust them. And so this is a reasonable request, right? We want a king that can judge us. And in fact, God had even made a provision in Deuteronomy for the fact that the people of Israel might one day want to have a king. So it wasn't necessarily a bad request. Like, let me read you what God says in Deuteronomy 17 to his people about this issue. It says, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it, and you dwell in it, and then you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. Only, look at this, he must not acquire many horses for himself, or cause the people to return to Egypt, either physically or metaphorically, where they'd been brought out of slavery and brought into freedom. He, he may not uh, cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Then he goes on to say this. He says, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book, a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priest, and it shall be with him. And he shall read in it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all his words of this law and these statutes and doing them that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. In other words, hey, if you want a king one day, that's totally okay. It just has to be a king that I choose. He has to be a godly king that isn't going to take from you. And listen, I want him to write down the words of the law so that he can read it constantly and get to know my heart and rule out of my heart. This is not a bad request on the surface for a king. But, but here's the deal. What's happening with the people of Israel, there's a dark underbelly to this request. Look at Uh, verse 20, because we get some more light shed on this request. Look at chapter 8, verse 20. They said, no, we want a king that we also may be like all the nations. 
and that our king may judge us and, look at this, go out before us and fight our battles. This is an absurd request. Remember, what had just happened in chapter 7 was God had fought their battles without them lifting a finger. They'd even placed a stone called Ebenezer to remind themselves that God is their help. And right after that, you're like almost supposed to catch the irony of this request. It literally goes from stone of remembrance to, oh, by the way, we'd really like a king that'll fight our battles for us. Have these people lost their collective minds? God is the one that has been fighting their battles. They make two requests that are painful, almost a slap in the face to God. The first is, we want a God that's going to fight our battles. Uh, Subtext, God hasn't been doing a good job doing that for us. Which if you track the story from Egypt all the way to this point, God has done nothing but work in power on their behalf. I mean, every time God shows up, he's working on their behalf. But the second thing they say is, oh, and by the way, we actually want a king so that we can be like all the other nations. Now, the whole idea with the people of Israel, when God brings them out of Egypt, his desire for them was for them to be a creative minority in the world, for them to have a different way of eating, a different way of dressing, a different way of understanding marriage and sexuality and how to understand money and service of the poor and care for the widows. They were to be a creative minority that all the other nations would look at this nation and say, what is going on? Who is their king? They are so different from us. They are a light to the nations. That was the intention of God. And what they're saying here is we actually want to reject God as our king, and we want an earthly king to fight our battles, and we want to reject the unique identity that God has brought us. We don't want to be unique. We don't want to be the creative minority. We want to be just like everybody else. This is the request. So notice Samuel's response. Uh, in verse six. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord and the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Now listen to the sadness that you can hear in God's voice. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. See, Samuel, get, Samuel gets his, his, uh, uh, his, his personal heart actually offended by this request. They show up to Samuel and they're like, hey, we want a king to judge over us. And what they're saying essentially, the way Samuel receives it is, oh, I haven't been doing a good enough job for you. Like literally, ever since I was a little boy, I've been pouring my life out for you. And now you're saying that I'm not good enough and what you want is a king to rule over you and be your judge. And, 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 and he goes to prayer and God, and God responds and says, hey, buddy, I know you're offended, but don't be offended. This isn't about you. Like get used to this. This is what they've been doing to me this whole time. This whole time since I've delivered them, since I've rescued them, since, since I've worked my salvation for them, they have constantly nonstop rejected me and ran after other things. You feel hurt? Join the club. This is what they've been doing to me since day one. Now, this is a sad story of the people of Israel not realizing what they have in God as their God and choosing instead to go their own way and establish their own king to rule over them. And as sad as that is, here's the reality. 
if, if you're reading a narrative, you're always trying to ask the question, like, which character am I in this story? And the character that you and I are in this story, unfortunately, is the people of Israel. We are Israel. This is us. This is not just a story about God's people 3,000 years ago and their rejection of God as king. This is a story about humanity that ever since day one, what we've been doing as the people of God and, and as humans in general is actually rejecting God as our king and deciding to establish our own versions of kings that are going to name us and define us and fight our battles for us and give us security and hope and give us everything that we think we need to live the good life. This is a story about humanity. And in particular, this is actually a critique about the people of God. So if you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus, you're a part of the church, this is a critique about how often the people of God can go in one moment from experiencing the mercy of God, the grace of God, knowing that Jesus is sufficient for them, knowing that his presence is fullness of joy, going from that place to literally the next chapter, if you will, we're demanding a king. This is what you and I do almost constantly. And, and sadly, our sin, every sin that we do is just another version of this story played out again and again and again. It's a rejection of Jesus as king. And we do it in some really subtle ways. We do it in some ways that you might not first identify as that sinful. Here's the problem. Like if we passed out a theological exam, all right, we're gonna do a test on the doctrine of God uh, and, and we passed this test out to you and we said, is God a provider? Theologically, a lot of us would check the box, yes. Like, I know the right answer, God is a provider. I believe that to be true. But then deep down, the voice that we would say is, but I've got to get mine. And I've got to look out for number one. And so theologically, we might know that God is a provider, but the way that we functionally live is often by trying to grasp possessions and money for ourselves and get security with our own ability to, to fight it into existence. That's a way that we establish our own king. Or another way that we do this is we might know in our minds that God is a God of love, and yet we run after a thousand other things to name us and define us and give us acceptance and give us the love that we are looking for, the approval that we're craving. Or what we might do is we, we know that God's commandments are good. We know that he's actually commanded uh, us away from sin because sin ends up killing us in the end. And he's commanding us towards a certain way of life, not because he's this cosmic killjoy, but because he wants us to experience pleasure. And yet sometimes we'll find areas or things in our life, something we really want, and it's outside of the bounds of what God has said, and we will do all kinds of weird matrix backbends around the laws of God just to pursue the thing that we're really wanting. We do this in a thousand different ways. Maybe for you it's pain and wounds that you carry with you. And instead of bringing those pains and those wounds to God as the healer who actually wants to heal you and wants to be present with you and wants to work inside of your life, uh, maybe what you do is you run to other things to numb out. Things like porn or alcohol or Netflix or whatever. And listen, it doesn't have to be bad things. Even really good things, when they become a king in your life, actually become a really bad thing. And this is something the people of God do over and over and over again. And here's what is really important for you to grasp. Your desires are not really the problem. Like if you desire pleasure, pleasure's not the problem. God actually wants your pleasure too. 
If, if you desire approval, approval's not bad to crave. Many of you are fighting and craving for approval. That's not bad. If you desire acceptance, that's not a bad thing. The problem isn't those desires. The problem is that you run from God and you pursue those desires in your own terms, on your own terms, rather than bringing those things to God as king. That's the problem with the people of Israel in the story. Not that they wanted a king, that's not a bad desire, but they wanted a king on their own terms. You and I do this. So I just want to ask you, where in your life are you currently grasping? Where, where in your life are you currently trying to force God's hand to bless you in your own definition of what that means? Where in your life right now are you elevating marriage or your singleness or your finances or pursuing influence or sex or sexuality or whatever it might be? Where are you chasing after these things as functional kings that are going to be the ones to name you and fight your battles and bring security and bring safety and bring hope? That's what the story is about. Now, what happens next is it's not what you'd expect. What's shocking is God's response to the people of Israel. You would expect God to be like, are you kidding me? You want a king? No way am I ever going to do that for you. You're going you're to ruin your life if I do that. But instead, look at what God graciously does in verse 9. Here's what he says. Now then, he tells Samuel, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. God says, they want a king, give them a king. Sometimes the scariest thing that could ever happen to you in prayer or in your request is that God would actually say yes to some of those things that you really want. And that's what's happening with the people of Israel. They're like, we want a king that's gonna fight our battles. And and God is saying, listen, you can have that, but it's not gonna end well for you. And you need to warn them of what's gonna happen when they demand a king. So listen to Samuel's words, because this is the discipline of God over his people to actually say, you want a king? Here's a king. You want this thing? I'm going to actually give you over to that thing that you want. Not to shame you, not to crush you, but just to show you that that isn't going to bring you what you think. So Samuel's warning, pick it up in verse 11. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands, commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. Verse 13, he will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male, and, uh, your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Day. Did you notice a reoccurring phrase? What was it? He will take. He will take. He will take. Six times the king has said, 
he will take, he will take, he will take. And what Samuel's saying is, listen, you think that the king is going to do these things for you, but I'm telling you, it's not going to go the way that you think. He's actually going to take from you six times. And there are six different warnings. And these are not just like willy-nilly thrown in there by Samuel. These are strategically placed in there, six different warnings of what this king is going to take. Number one, your sons. He's going to take your sons and turn them into his soldiers. Number two, he's going to take your family. Your daughters, they're going to be taken away from you. And they're going to become perfumers and bakers and cooks for the king. Your gifts, number three, he's going to take your gifts, the best of your fields, your vineyards, your olive orchards, all these things. He's going to take from you your gifts that you have. Your inheritance, number four, he's going to take your inheritance, your livestock and your land, things that would be passed down from one generation to the next. The king is going to take your inheritance from you. Number five, your identity. One of the most shocking things that Samuel says in this is that you will become his slaves. Now that would have rung in the people of Israel's ears because their whole narrative, their whole story was that we were slaves in Egypt. But what happened? God brought us out of our slavery and freedom and he's bringing us into the promised land. And what, what is saying, what's being said here by Samuel is actually you're going to revert back to slaves. You're going backwards in the story. And then finally, he will take your spirit. At the very end, not the Holy Spirit, your spirit. It says at the very end, you're going to cry out in agony because of your king and desperation because of your king. And here's the point. And this applies to us so, so, so timely in our culture today. The kings of this world always promise to give you, but they always end up taking. The kings of this world do nothing but take from you. Everything out in the world is offering you life the good life and freedom and joy and pleasure and bliss and autonomy and, all, and wealth and the, 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 the American dream and everything that you could ever ask for. But as you start to chase those things down and as you make those things your king, instead of those things naming you and helping you and filling you, they just end up taking from you. They make promises that they cannot ever keep. I don't think you have to be a follower of Jesus to see that this is real. Uh, David Foster Wallace is one of my favorite writers. Uh, Tragic story, was not a follower of Jesus. He ended up taking his own life because he struggled with depression for so long. But he wrote some beautiful, beautiful things. One of the things that he says uh, is this. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice that we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some inviolable set of ethical principles, listen, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if, the, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel that you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. The point is this, that the kings of this world, they're extending offers to us. But as we 
trade God for those things, those things never actually bring us the thing that we're hoping for and they always take us to a bad place. And here's the big idea. Like, hey, what if God isn't actually a cosmic killjoy? Like, what if God is not just creating rules because he doesn't want us to have any pleasure and he doesn't want us to have any fun? What if God is actually creating rules and commands and ways of living because he wired humanity and knows how we work and knows what is good for us and knows what is bad for us? Like, we get this on a parenting level. If you're a dad or a mom in the room, you know there are certain things that your kids want that are not good for them and certain things that are that you have to guide them into. What if it is the same with God, our Father, and yet we do not have the sense at times to recognize what he's doing and we're constantly in the business of rejecting and trading God as king and running to these other things to be the thing that we need to satisfy. It's not that God is after our miserable lives. It's that God is like, man, I know what's good for you. I know what you need. I know what you want. I know deep down the desire beneath the desire, and I'm trying to help you there. I want to be the one to fight your battles. I want to be the one that steps in to care for you. I want to be the one that is your functional king, and yet this is a story of their rejection. So what happens in the story? Well, we're going to unpack it over the next several weeks. But what happens in the story initially starts out great. The rest of the story is that in chapter 9, you're thinking, oh man, this is going to go really, really well because God raises up King Saul. King Saul's awesome. He's tall. Uh, He's the tallest man in Israel. He's handsome. If the Bible says you're handsome, you are emphatically a good-looking person. And and, and the Bible's like, yeah, he's a handsome guy. He's the most handsome guy in Israel. And and so here's this, like, handsome, strong king. And we're like, yeah, here's the guy. He's going to fight our battles. He's going to do it. And then then you see him actually having some success and a rise to power. He starts to defeat enemies. And then you get to chapter 13. And things start falling apart. And then you finally get to where King David is on the scene before he's even the king. And he's showing up to fight Goliath. And where is Saul? He's hiding out in his tent, afraid to even do the very thing that Israel needed him to do. He's afraid to go out and fight their battles. He's hiding out in the tent. And some little shepherd boy has to step up and do the hard work. This is a story that does not end well. And kings will come and they will go and they will come and they will go. They will rise and then they will fall. They will rise and they fall. And after every single king rises and falls, the people of Israel are looking at each other and they're looking at God and they're saying, where's the king? Where's the king? Like we, we wanted a king and we wanted someone to fight our battles. We wanted someone to name us and define us. And this has not worked. And it leads to a really, really, dark place. The people of Israel eventually hit rock bottom because of their decision. And here's what I want to say about that, that God allows them to hit rock bottom, not because he hates them, not because he wants their worst, not because he wants to shame them, but God allows them to hit rock bottom because he's so hoping that when they get to that dark place, their eyes begin to lift and they realize God really is the king that we need. And I just want to say to you, if you're in the room today and you've hit rock bottom, like you've chased your own life, 
you've functionally been your own king or you've rejected God as king and you've established other kings in, your, in, in his place. And that has led you to a place where you feel like you are too far gone. I want you to hear today that it's not the wrath of God on your life. It's not the justice of God. It's not God pushing you away from him. If that's the place that you are in, it's because God is giving you a gift and allowing you to hit rock bottom. And now he's inviting you to come back home. He's inviting you to come back home. This is where the people of Israel get, so what happens? They cry out, where is the king? Where is the king? What type of king do we need? And here's how I want to bring us to a close. The king that we need eventually does show up. And he shows up in a surprising way. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, we read this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is an incredible announcement. Early first century Jewish people would have caught on very quickly. Wait, son of David? Jesus is a descendant from the royal line of David? Jesus is the king? What type of king is he going to be? Is he going to fail us like all the other kings? And then you get to Matthew 4 and Jesus preaches his very first sermon and he says these words. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. Now that word repent, I know we're in Oklahoma and you hear that word like repent. You know, you hear it like a, like an angry man on a street corner with a sign yelling at you. It's one of condemnation and judgment. You're evil. Repent. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, hey, listen, repent. It's Greek. It means, uh, it's a Greek word that is, is metanoia. It literally means to turn around. He's saying, you've been choosing to be your own king this whole time. You've been establishing all these other kings this whole time. I'm inviting you to repent today, and I'm inviting you because the king is here, and I'm establishing my kingdom. The kingdom of God is here, and you are invited in. It doesn't matter how far gone you think you are. It doesn't matter how broken or jacked up your life is. You are invited into this kingdom. Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then Jesus goes on and what he does is absolutely unreal. Unlike all the kings of this world, he doesn't ever take anything except for our sin and our shame on his own life. But instead, this king, the king of heaven, he gives and he gives and he gives. And ultimately, he gives his own life on a cross in our place for our sins. Jesus reverses all these six different things that earthly kings take. Remember the the earthly kings, Samuel says, they're going to take your sons, your family, gifts, inheritance, identity, your spirit. Well, look at what the king of heaven gives. First, he gives us sonship. You're adopted into the family of God as sons. Second, he gives us family. It's not just me and Jesus riding off in the distance, but he brings us into spiritual family. Third, Jesus came as the good king to give us gifts. He, give, he gives us gifts of salvation and forgiveness. And he gives us, a, he gives us gifts uh, through the Holy Spirit. And then fourthly, he gives us an inheritance that's kept in heaven for us. It's unfading. It won't go anywhere. Fifthly, he gives us a new identity. Earthly kings take our identity and we go from being free to slaves. Jesus came to bring us out of our slavery into real freedom. And then finally, Jesus came to give us his spirit. The kings of this world always take and Jesus, the king of heaven, he just wants to give to you. Any of you that will repent and come because the kingdom of heaven is here. So I want to invite you. Would you stand with me for just a second? And if you would, take a second and close your eyes and think about your own life for just a minute. 
Don't think about the person sitting next to you to your left or right. Think about yourself, your own life. I just want to ask you, if you are increasingly becoming disillusioned with the kings of this world, the promises that things in this world are offering you to fill you and name you and satisfy you, if you're becoming disillusioned, I want you to realize this morning that Jesus is actually inviting you to himself. He's inviting you to himself. Maybe your life is falling apart today. And listen, for many of you, maybe your life is falling apart and it literally has nothing to do with you. It's just because we live in a sinful, broken, jacked up world. We live in a world where the kingdom of God isn't fully here yet. Even though it is here, it's not fully here. But listen, maybe some of you are here and your life literally is falling apart and you're starting to see evidence that maybe it's because there's decisions and choices that have been made. And I want you to realize that is not necessarily God punishing you. It's in his love, he's disciplining you. He's chasing you down. He is not willing to let you keep making decisions and just go on with wanting whatever king you want and that end well. He's wanting you to realize that what you really need and what you really want is found in him alone. And today, he's maybe even if it's a whisper, he's whispering to you, calling you back home. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Come back home. Today, Jesus is inviting you to bring your other kings that you've put in place of Jesus and to lay those down at his feet and experience him as the only good king that you ultimately need. You have desires that are beneath these desires for acceptance, for approval, for pleasure. Whatever those things are, I want you to remember these words from Romans 8.31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things?